Welcome to Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I have with me Rory Stewart, the MP for Penrith and the Borders, now Minister of State, but he's also an author, formerly an academic. He's been the deputy governor of a province in Iraq. He's walked 6,000 miles across Asia. He has all sorts of strings to his very considerable bow. And the latest is his new book, The Marches, in which he describes a trip from east to west, zigzagging across the border between England and Scotland, in part with his late father. Rory, can you start by just telling me what was the origin of the walk? I mean, was it, you thought, there's a book in this? So the walk began with an obsession with borders. I'm the Member of Parliament for Penrith and the border, so I have half the English-Scottish border in my constituency. I am somebody who is by heart a Scot, but I represent an English constituency, and I've spent a lot of my life working on borders, including in places like Afghanistan. And I'm very interested in what happens at borders, and particularly at the moment at which I started the walk, which was just before the referendum on Scottish independence, I was very interested in the question of whether Scotland and England really were different at a border. And I hoped, because I'm a romantic unionist probably, I really believe in the United Kingdom, I really hoped to find that there wasn't much difference at the border, because a lot of my experience as a Cumbrian MP was that we had a lot of in common with people just north of the border. And did your experience of the walk bear that out? No, a lot of the walk is about my realising through walking how much I still had to understand about Britain. In other words, often I would turn up in somebody's house and realise that there were very stark differences between England and Scotland that I hadn't anticipated. So whereas in Northumbria people would often say, I see myself as an honorary Scot, I never found a Scot say that they thought about themselves as an honorary Northumbrian. The accent, of course, changes so dramatically at the border. It's, it's bizarre. A very strong Northern English accent goes right the way up to the border, and then a yard later, you're into a strong Scottish accent. Land-holding patterns are different. And above all, people's sense of identity is very different. I, I realised when I went to a Burns Night Supper in Cumbria that Cumbrians were completely mystified by this thing and had never seen a Burns Night Supper, which was completely normal, just five miles north. Did it sort of affect your sense of your own Scottishness? I mean, there's a, you know, your father who's very involved in the book, obviously, you know, he was constantly in tartan and eating haggis and, I mean, sort of performed his Scottishness. And obviously you grew up with that. Did you have a sort of straightforward sense of yourself as Scottish when you started? Yes, I think so. I mean, my father was so proud of being Scottish and not English. That was very fundamental to him, as well as being very proud of being British. And I think... As you said, he he loved his haggis. He loved the fact he wore tartan trousers every day, even in Vietnam. He held Scottish dancing parties in Shanghai. He taught himself Gaelic. But for him, I think one of the real reasons he believed in the United Kingdom is that he felt it wouldn't be as fun if the English weren't around. In fact, one of the main advantages for him, I think, about being Scottish was to annoy the English. And I think he was worried that if the United Kingdom broke up, that wouldn't be a possibility for him. Yes, it's a lovely bit where you, ca- you catch him having been a great devotee of Burns and having a little... So actually you say, what do you really think of Burns? And you didn't really like him. <laughs> yeah, it turns out that a lot of the things that I assumed were really important to him, because he'd make us read Rabbi Burns to guests, he just thought were funny. A lot of his sense of identity was really comic and deliberately over the top. It's It's much more a tradition of 19th century 
early 20th century Scottishness. It relates to Scottish music hall comedians of the 1920s, 1930s, and the way in which he, he thought about the world. And sat very, very awkwardly with modern Scottish nationalism, which is quite serious and doesn't like making jokes about its own identity. And you also, I mean, there is this, this rather ugly bit that kicks off the book where you're, you describe how your father sort of has been in this quite nice place for a long time and has come from generations and quite a lot of money in the family, that he encounters somebody local in old age. Can you talk a bit about that sense of a sudden fissure between the idea that class enters into it, maybe? So when I had just returned from Afghanistan, just returned from uh, nearly two years away, walking across Pakistan, India, uh, Nepal and Afghanistan, I went for a walk with my father. And as you say, this was his house in Scotland, where his father had lived. And he was then in his mid-80s and already beginning to get a little bit frail. And as I was walking along, I suddenly heard him shout. And what had happened is that he had come across a young man and a young woman who had just climbed across his fence. And my father was saying to him, I don't mind you coming on my land, but please don't destroy my fence. At which point this young man, who I guess was probably 18 years old, turned around to my father and said that he wanted to fight him, challenged my father to a fight, said he wanted to hit him. And you could see this moment where my father, completely thrown off balance, because there he is in his mid-80s being challenged to a fight by somebody who's 18. I became very angry, partly, I think, because... I felt very strongly that in Afghanistan nobody would speak to someone in their mid-80s in this way, that it was completely inappropriate to challenge someone like that to a fight. And then this man started shouting about how he said that my father shit money, was, and he kept repeating this again and again in a more and more aggressive way. It was a sudden revelation for me that this life that my father lived, which for him was quite dignified, which related to his idea of Scottish history, of clan history, of what it meant to be a Scottish gentleman, what it meant to be an army officer, what it meant to be a British diplomat, was, from the point of view of this 18-year-old, a complete scandal and offence, and he just despised what my father represented. And I think there was something quite important in that, which remains today in a lot of the discussions around Scottish nationalism. Can you talk a little bit about your father, because he's so important in this book and in his I mean, one of the things that I think is so impressive and moving about the book is that it's, which you don't very often get, a very tender portrait of filial love. It's about your relationship with your father, but he's obviously had this extraordinary career. So my, my father grew up in Scotland and then went off and joined the Black Watch and fought in the war and was wounded in the war and then became a Malayan civil servant. So he found himself in his early 20s as a district officer governing large swathes of Malaya and loved it really reveled in being simultaneously in charge of the police, in charge of the courts, in charge of the administration, driving around with a gun on his dashboard, chasing bandits, getting involved in the Malayan emergency. And then, in his late 30s after Malayan independence, he joined the British Secret Service, where he lived this curious life, really, that coincides with the period of the James Bond novels where he would drink martini with CIA officers before lunch, had himself stuffed into a miniature submarine to land off the coast of Borneo, buried caches of weapons along the coast of Asian rivers, 
and then moved on to be a businessman in China in the 1980s and 1990s, so that by the time he returned to Scotland, he'd spent nearly 50 years of his life in Asia, spoke beautiful Chinese, and really filled our house with an extraordinary array of Chinese and Indian bits, pots, desks, pictures of bouncing Pekingese or Chinese ladies in fur hats, so that although we lived in Scotland, we lived in Scotland in this sort of miniature Asian museum. And you were the child of his second marriage. He was, I think, 50, was he, when you arrived? So a lot of the sort of action side of his life was gone. Were you very aware of that when you were growing up? And I don't know what the statute of limitations is, for instance, on when you can tell your kids you're a spy. I mean, did you, did you know about his past as you were a child? No, n- not at all. I, I didn't know at all. And he only told me nearly, I guess, well, years after he'd left the service, by which time I was already much older. And even when I was told, so I was, I was worried about actually being told, because I was worried about my father's safety, I was worried about telling anyone else. Later, when I... Had, dropped, you, had you sort of suspected or inferred? I mean... I suppose so, and it was maybe less of a secret than I thought, because a lot of his later work, he became increasingly... He ended up as the deputy head of the Secret Service, so he was a sort of more public figure. It wasn't a a great secret. It wouldn't have been a surprise to the Russians to know that he'd been a spy. I never really understood, though, what the job was. And I suppose still, even though I spent a lot of time with him, I loved my father, I spent a lot of time interviewing him, it was still quite difficult for me to get a sense of his day-to-day work as an intelligence officer in the late 1950s, because by the time I was interviewing him about it, it was 40 years later. How much did his... His background, I mean, obviously, a lot of it you didn't know about. Shape your own, just because, you know, you went into his old regiment. You went into foreign service in East Asia, initially Jakarta, I think you were at. I mean, was there a bit of, you know, wanting to sort of do what he'd done? Yes, I very much followed in his footsteps, exactly as you say. I joined the same regiment in the British Army. I joined the Black Watch. I then joined the Foreign Office. And he loved that, so that when I was posted, as you say, to the embassy in Indonesia, he immediately turned up. He was then, I guess, in his mid-70s, charged off down to the market, returned with parrots, and the setup for an aviary began making machetes in the local market and giving me all this advice, because he felt that his 50 years in government had perfectly positioned him to tell me exactly what I was supposed to do, ranging from the fact that he believed that one should have an hour of language lesson every morning at breakfast with a teacher reading the local newspapers, that she should always get into the office, ideally two hours before any of your colleagues, so that you had cleared your desk before they arrived, and so you could impress the ambassador. He was always very interested in impressing his ambassador and getting his ambassador on side. And also his other basic beliefs in life, which were, above all, that it's better to Uh, ask forgiveness and seek permission. In other words, he was a real believer in what he called the fait accompli. He loved encouraging me to launch operations with no permission from anybody, believing that if I asked permission, they'd probably say no. And if I did them anyway and got away with them, I'd be congratulated. (laughs) There's there's an extraordinary bit in the book, actually. When you're in Iraq, there's a sort of popular uprising, another popular uprising, but it's lapping at the gates of the compound. And the first thing you do is pick up the sat phone and phone your dad to ask him what to do. Could you? Yeah, so I'm, I'm in Iraq, and I'm, I guess I was then 30, and I was the deputy governor of this province. And outside the office, we had 
a few thousand people with large placards saying death to the governor and and they were trying to storm our compound. And I was there and the British colonel was there and we had soldiers out. And I rung my father and I said, what do I do? Because I was aware that he'd dealt with this situation a lot when he'd been a British colonial officer. And he said, oh, it's very straightforward. Shoot the ringleader and declare a 24-hour curfew. So I said, I'm not quite sure about that. So I hung up and I, <laughs> I said to the British colonel, uh, look, my father says we should shoot the ringleader and declare a 24-hour curfew. And the colonel said, look, I... Maybe, but I just have no idea how to do that. I mean, we don't do that kind of stuff anymore, right? And, of course, because we didn't do it, to some extent, my father was vindicated because, as a result, because we didn't take control of the situation, the mob got completely out of control, stormed buildings, destroyed the provincial council offices, people were killed, computers were destroyed. And I suppose he would have said, in retrospect, that if we gripped the thing earlier in the way that he'd suggested, we would have saved a lot of property and life. Did you ever... How, and, you know, there's this sort of following in a father's footsteps as a constant... You describe how he called you his, his best and sometimes only real close friend. Was there any moment of sort of Oedipal revolt of just thinking you wanted to do something different to go against your dad? I never really felt that. It's partly, I think, that he was so generous. I think partly because he was 50 when I was born. He was very, very laid back. He didn't seem in any way, to have any views on what I was going to do with my life. He never seemed to want to comment or criticise. And so he was quite difficult to rebel against. It was difficult to work out what you could really do that would frustrate him. So, for example, he was incredibly smartly dressed and very traditionally dressed. When he wasn't in his tartan trues in the earlier period of his life, he wore very beautiful suits, and he was a very kind of good-looking man. My response to that when I was... 18, 19, 20, was to wear literally sacks as trousers. I, I had canvas jute bags, which I wore as trousers, and large boots and bright yellow or bright orange jumpers. And I'd turn up to meet him at lunch, and there he would be this very sort of impeccably dressed man and take me that. But he never commented on what must have been completely bizarre clothes from his point of view. It's possible that the only real rebellion I did was to walk across Asia, because in doing that I was doing something that he hadn't done in a part of the world in which he'd never worked. His his life had been spent in Malaysia and China, and so, and he never really developed an emotional relationship to the Middle East. Places like Iran and Afghanistan never really appealed to him. So I suppose that walk, immersing myself so deeply in that particular culture, maybe, in retrospect, was my doing something that my father hadn't done and couldn't do. He, he also wasn't I mean, I think this, you know, the, the shoot the shoot the ringleader's side of him didn't approve so much of you becoming an MP, did it? I mean, he sort of said, oh, paper shuffling, why don't you, you know? Yes, he, which is actually, in, in many ways, was a great gift to me because it means that there was never any pressure whatsoever on me becoming an MP, rather the reverse. He really didn't have any time for members of parliament. He couldn't understand what a member of parliament really was. I once called him on the phone, overheard him saying, I don't know how Rory puts up with it, all these committees, this talking shop, shuffling bits of paper. And when he tried to give me advice on being an MP, basically what he described was being a colonial governor. So he'd say, what you should do is be in your constituency and you should set up your own volunteer police force and you should try to make voluntary organisations in order to just build stuff and get schools built. And 
The idea of legislation, the idea of committees, particularly committees, I mean, it just horrified him. In fact, the whole word committee was his idea of horror. There's an interesting kind of fork in it, though, where, where you get yourself relegated, not quite to the back benches, but you're punished for rebelling against the government on Lord's reform. And your father, I'm, I'm surprised by this, given he's such a traditionalist, was like, you should just have knuckled under, because then you'd have got a job and you could actually get something done. That's right. That surprised me because I think, again, the ways in which he would probably have said that we were different is that I get very wound up about certain kind of moral issues. So I got very wound up about this question of the Constitution and it felt deeply, deeply emotionally important to me that we had to approach the Constitution in the right way and I didn't think this idea of abolishing the House of Lords through a vote in the House of Commons was the right way to do it and I went to a lot of care and trouble to vote against the government on that. And as you say, I could never get my father to sympathise with my decision. His view was I should have just buckled down, done what the whip said, and been promoted and got a ministerial job sooner in order to get things done. And that he felt that this thing that I felt was a great sort of point of honour was probably, from his point of view, simply naive or quixotic. In the course of writing this book, you actually describe how you're writing the book, because towards towards the end, you're talking to your father about saying, well, I've, you know, I've got the bit where I set out and I've got the bit where I saw this great disillusionment uh, with the whole idea of you know, British Union. And what's the third bit of the book going to be? And the third bit of the book ends up, of course, being your father's death. Did you know as you were walking with him that this was possibly a sort of farewell? So my father was, by the time I began walking with him in his late 80s, and by the time I was finishing the book was already 92. But in a way, he'd been so old for so long that I suppose I had begun to... He, he loved the phrase, I remember when he was younger, he loved the phrase three score years and ten. So he'd always given me the impression when I was a child he was going to die when he was 70. And he totally exceeded that by so much that I began to think that he was almost entirely indestructible. So it is true, of course, that one of the reasons why we had a very close relationship and one of the reasons that I spent a lot of time with him and one of the reasons why I interviewed him in great depth is that I was of course aware that he was very very old but he didn't seem the sort of person ultimately who was likely really to die I mean he was so resilient and peculiar and energetic and stubborn and unconventional that it seemed quite likely that he would simply refuse to cooperate with the whole idea of dying so I think it became the end of the book and he must have also sensed that. He knew I was writing the book. He knew I was writing about him. He was wonderfully also understanding about the bits of the book that he read. I was terrified about him getting hold of these bits until I'd really edited them and looked at them and made sure that there was nothing in them that could possibly upset him or offend him. But he just thought it was hilarious, my descriptions of him, in ways that I, I was very worried that oh, maybe this is too intimate, maybe this is too critical, maybe this is going to upset him. He just claimed to be amused, flattered, diverted by this portrait of him. Because so you'd think of his, you know, a man of his generation, his worldview actually would find the sort of intimacy of the book difficult. He was very odd. So he completely turned on its head this idea that somebody of that generation was necessarily sort of stiff and distant. He was incredibly intimate. He hugged me and kissed me. He was very, very happy, being very, very emotional and close to me. I mean, almost more like a sort of cliche of an Italian father than a British father. And I think that was partly 
that his own father had been astonishingly distant. I, I didn't really realise this until the end. I mean, I started to interview him and I said, what was your father like? Because I realised that although, you know, we'd spent 43 years together, I didn't get what his father had been like. And he said, oh, he's a, he's a quiet, good-looking man, always reading the newspaper. And I said, yeah, yeah, I get that. But apart from that, what was he like? And he said, no, I, he's a quiet, good-looking man, always reading the newspaper. And I said, no, but what was he like? And he said, well, to be honest, I don't really know him. I mean, uh, of course, he was in India. I was in Scotland, said my father, and he only got leave every four years. So I think I saw him when I was three. And then he came back again when I was seven and took us to the Isle of Skye, and it rained a lot, and he got cross with us and wasn't very successful. And then he didn't come back when I was 11 because he was ill. So I think he came back when I was 15, but then he was sick again, and I just remember having to be quiet around his bed. And the next time I saw him, says my father, was when I was 23 at the end of the war in India. And by then my brother had been killed in the Blackwatch fighting in North Africa, and my father had lost one of his sons without really knowing him. So the real answer to your question, Rory, is I didn't really know my father. Well, it's nice that you've known yours so well. Rory, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do read this week's book section in the magazine, where there's a feast of delights, including Jenny Colgan, the Doctor Who writer and novelist, talking about the history of time travel and its work in literature. There's Andrew Motion, former poet laureate, writing about the deaths of poets. Another poet, John Burnside, considers Gwendolyn Riley's superb new novel. Jeff Noon gives his latest pick of crime fiction. And Nicholas Shakespeare explains how he was once mistaken for Ludovic Kennedy's illegitimate son. Our podcast comes out every Thursday. Do subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud if you don't want to miss one.